over time, the significance or the meaning of words can change. For example, clergy originally meant learning or scholarship, and a clerk was the word for a man who had been ordained into Christian ministry. Bimbo is the Italian word for little child and once meant tough guy or one of the boys. Many of that has changed. <laughs> Awful. Once meant full of awe, something that was wonderful, delightful, or amazing. Gay, until fairly recently, meant to be merry, happy, or carefree. And if a person was spiritual, in most circles, that meant that they were a Christian who took their faith seriously. Theologically, it meant that they were one who was rightly related to the Holy Spirit. Today, when someone is described as spiritual... It doesn't necessarily mean that they're rightly related to the Holy Spirit or that they're even Christian. Oprah is considered to be a very spiritual person, as is Ralph Lauren, Tom Cruise, John Travolta, Greta Van Susteren. None of those that I just mentioned would claim Christianity as their faith. The last three actually are Scientologists. But they're all relatively moral people who have been described at various times as spiritual We need to be sensitive how this term is being used today and how it's used publicly in our culture so as not to confuse it with the spirituality of the Bible. We shouldn't confuse contemporary spirituality or the contemporary use of that word spirituality with the same spirituality that's found in the Word of God. One authority on contemporary spirituality has the following ten suggestions for growing spiritually. This is non-Christian spirituality, in case you're taking notes. Some of these actually are not bad. Some of them overlap with Christian ethics, but these are what those that are out in in the community trying to have a spirituality without God, this is what they're trying to do. The first is don't judge yourself or others. Second, do not gossip or talk badly of others. When you have an opportunity to speak a kind word, take it. I want to pause here for just a moment. There's a new way of spreading gossip. There's a new way of maligning people, and it's not around a coffee table. We need to be careful about this. It's called the Internet. With all seriousness, if you have an Internet rumor that you're passing along, particularly about a business or a company, check it out first before you send it to all your friends because that's going to be the same thing as sitting down with somebody in their living room and and gossiping or maligning, and there is discipline for that. So just be careful. But that's the second thing that this person would suggest to have contemporary spirituality. Don't gossip. Add your light to the world is number three. Lend a hand to to create positive change. Number four, learn how to balance. They say the joy of being a spiritual person is being aware of the life process and its challenges and striving to create the time to balance your work, play, and rest. Not bad. Number five is respect yourself. A spiritual person believes that self-love is necessary to love others. Taking loving care of yourself through a healthy diet, exercise, and quiet time allows you reflective time with the divine, which in turn allows you to give more joy, love, and wisdom to others. Number six, stay in the now. Being present is essential on the path to spiritual growth. Now there's some existentialism there if those of you that are familiar with philosophy. Number seven, don't give up. Number eight, do no harm. This is my favorite one. Do no harm. I'm not joking. Try to avoid killing bugs. Now in in our house... We would be permanently unspiritual because there's a bug in our house. That bug's going to die if we have anything to do with it. They say this simple act of kindness can create a major shift within your consciousness. 
Number nine, avoid being a spiritual snob. And number ten, keep learning. Now, I hope you saw several of those we'd agree with. But none has any mention of salvation, forgiveness of sin, submission to the Almighty. It's an attempt at an ethical system apart from God. In the contemporary mindset, one is spiritual if they seem to find significance in something outside of themselves and live a relatively moral life. That's contemporary spirituality. In the passage that we study this morning, we must from the outset come to an understanding of how Paul is using the term spiritual and also how he's going to use the terms mature and natural. And this understanding is critical to a proper application of this passage. As we work through the study, and it will not just place, take place today, but it will be over a, a couple of lessons, we'll find out that there's a marked difference in the way the contemporary culture uses the word spiritual and the way the Bible uses the term. So we ask the question today, what is spirituality from a biblical viewpoint? Read along with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Paul says to the Corinthian church, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us from God or by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, a key verse. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. Then finally in verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In this paragraph... Paul is stressing that God's divine self-disclosure, here known as God's wisdom, the things of the Spirit, and the thoughts of God, are only rightly understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to fully understand, appreciate, and apply God's revelation to mankind. It's impossible. In the previous paragraph, Paul made a very strong point that the power of his message was not in himself, but it was in Jesus Christ. And the message of the cross itself, that's where the power was. That's why he had no intention of entering into some sort of public speaking contest 
with the debaters of his age. He didn't want to undermine the validity of his message by entering into some silly contest and say, well, who's the best public speaker? That must be the truth. Paul says, no, that's not what we're going to do. He refused. In fact, in verses 4 and 5 we studied last time, he says, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's entirely possible, if not probable, that based upon their cultural norms, the Corinthians considered Paul to be a below-average public speaker. And probably, if we read between the lines here, probably they considered him to be a below-average thinker. As Paul will outline his case here, if we pay close attention, we're going to see they were badly mistaken. Badly mistaken. I'm consistently amazed, personally, at the way the biblical authors, writing under the influence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, make their arguments. It's fascinating. The deeper you get into the text, the more staggering it is to observe. The Holy Spirit must surely be grieved when he observes superficial treatments of his masterpiece. And that's what this is. The Word of God is his masterpiece. In fact, you're his masterpiece as well. It would be like going to the Musée d'Orsay in Paris and standing for three seconds in front of a Monet or a Renoir or a Van Gogh and thinking, well, that's nice. When's lunch? A guy, Kogeval, who's the curator of the Musée d'Orsay, happened to be close by and observed that kind of buffoonery and that kind of disdain for such masterpieces, he'd probably just shake his head and wonder why he paid the 14 euro to get in in the first place. Why bother? The Corinthians were an arrogant and a prideful bunch who at this point in their Christian experience had absolutely no clue of the blessing that they were enjoying by having the Apostle Paul teach them the Word of God. Neither did they have an appreciation for the fact that the God of the universe had seen fit to reveal himself to them in the first place. No clue at all. It would almost be humorous if it wasn't so unlovely. But the things that flow from pride are seldom lovely. And they were a prideful people. As Paul frames his argument in 1 Corinthians, he does so brilliantly. And what he'll do is he'll move from the general to the specific in today's lesson, he's going to be speaking in terms of generalities. As we move into the next chapter, he'll get much more specific with regard to spirituality. We have already introduced the question, what is spirituality? Now, the question is, what is spirituality from a biblical viewpoint? We've already kind of seen what spirituality is from a cultural viewpoint. We need to be very, very careful when people use that word. Just because someone comes up and says, well, my neighbor, is she's so spiritual. That doesn't mean that she's so Christian. It may mean something entirely different. We need to probe. We don't need, just need to use that word as though it was answering the question you're actually asking. Let's be careful about that. We need to ask and answer, what is the question spirituality from a biblical viewpoint? And as Paul answers this in chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, he's going to give some general answers. Then he's going to move to chapter 3, and it's going to get much more specific in this paragraph, the one who is identified as spiritual, chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, the beginning of his argument, or the beginning of his case, 
The one who is identified as spiritual is the one who, to use Paul's term, appraises all things, yet is appraised by no man. That seems almost confusing a bit, at least to me it would. The one who is spiritual is the one who appraises all things, but he himself is appraised by no man. As Paul opens up his exposition on spirituality and the relationship of the Holy Spirit's ministry to understanding divine discourse, he's going to use the term spiritual in its most general sense. That being one who has received the Holy Spirit or one who's saved. This is key as Paul opens his argument. And this is just the opening salvo. The way he describes the person who is spiritual from a biblical standpoint is simply someone who's saved. Later on, it's going to change. It's, but here, it's just someone who's saved. In the same way, as he used this phrase in verse 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. The way he's using the term mature in this paragraph is not how he'll use it later in his ministry or even later in this book. Typically, we think of someone who is mature spiritually as someone who has walked down the road of the Christian experience, has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and then has exercised faith throughout the way, learning and loving. That's not how he's going to use the term here. That's why I want to take the entirety of the lesson today to give an overview of how he's using these terms. Because if we were just to take our understanding of spirituality from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, we'd have a very limited view. But Paul's not stopping here. He's just starting here. It would be like watching Perry Mason give his closing argument and only listening to half of it. You're going to miss the best part. Well, now he's speaking in generalities. So the one who is spiritual is someone who appraises all things that is appraised by no man. In the text, he is described as one who has the Holy Spirit, one who loves God. Very simple. The term mature is also the Greek term for one who is complete. This also describes, in this paragraph alone, someone who is saved. It's probably the only time that this is done in the scriptures. But both the term spiritual and the term mature are used simply for someone who is saved. Now, in the next chapter, and I hope you'll hang in there with us through this next chapter, and in subsequent letters, Paul's going to expand upon the idea of what is spirituality, what is Christian spirituality, biblical spirituality. But here, the spiritual person is simply one who is saved has the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, for Paul's argument here, has the potential to understand spiritual things. That's how he's starting his discussion on spirituality. If you have the Holy Spirit, and if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. In this dispensation, we're all indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We don't have to pray that prayer that David prayed. Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He was very concerned about that because it was a reality for him. He had seen the Holy Spirit been taken from Saul when Saul had his great sin. And it would be very logical for David to consider that God was going to take the Holy Spirit from him when he had his great sin. That's why he prays, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. It was a reality that he could have had the Holy Spirit taken from him, but you can't. You're permanently indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So at the most basic level, everyone, every human being who has placed their faith and their faith alone in Jesus Christ, to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, has the Holy Spirit, and as Paul argues here, has the ability to understand spiritual things. Hence, his description of one who is spiritual is one who appraises all things. 
Speaking about spiritual things there. Has the potential, again to use this terminology here, to understand God's wisdom, the things of the Spirit, and the thoughts of God. In other words, his divine self-disclosure. If he left it at that, we would be tempted to think that all Christians are spiritual all the time. In the sense that he's speaking of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, they are. There's more later on, but in this sense, they are. That's a valid statement. It's a recognition that those who have the Holy Spirit and have the potential to understand God's wisdom are spiritual. As he leaves it here. But there is more to it than just that. Remember, Paul's building an argument. This isn't the end of it. It's the beginning of it. He's making a case. And this is the first stone that he's laying in the foundation. All believers have the Holy Spirit. Using subsequent terminology, all believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. In contrast, there's a third term here in this chapter, or in this paragraph in verse 14 that we need to understand and that's the term natural man the distinction in this paragraph is between the spiritual person who has the potential to understand God's self-disclosure and the natural man who does not have that potential this is not saying that the natural man cannot understand many many things and they cannot have an IQ that's off the chart that's not the point but in order to understand and fully appreciate spiritual things, we need the Holy Spirit's help. Some people would use this as an argument against evidentialism in apologetics. In other words, giving certain evidences for the existence of God. I don't use that that way at all. Because even in that, that theological and evangelistic discussion, the Holy Spirit's involved to help people see the truth of the moral argument for the existence of God or the cosmological argument or the teleological argument for the existence of God. The Holy Spirit's involved in that too. The point is, since we're fallen human beings, without the Holy Spirit's help, we're not going to understand anything. So there's a distinction that's drawn in this early part of 1 Corinthians between the natural man who doesn't have the Holy Spirit and can't appraise spiritual things and the spiritual man who has the Holy Spirit and has the potential. It doesn't mean we're going to. But it means we have the potential. It doesn't mean we can, can avoid any effort at all when it comes to Bible study. It's not like we're going to get it by the old biological term osmosis. It's not just going to filter in. We have to put in the effort. But the Holy Spirit's the one that makes it real. And the Holy Spirit's the one that helps us to understand how to apply it. That's the contrast between natural man and spiritual man. Natural man in verse 14, spiritual man in verse 15. Once more, in chapter 2, the one who is spiritual is a believer and can understand God's wisdom, the things of the Spirit, and the thoughts of God. The natural man is one who is an unbeliever, who cannot understand God's wisdom, the things of the Spirit, or the thoughts of God. Really, the emphasis in chapter 2 is on the perception of God's wisdom. It's more on that than it is on spirituality, because he's not limiting spirituality to the perception of God's wisdom. If this is all there is, this is less than ideal. We don't have enough information, really. 
So you might expect Paul is going to elaborate in the next chapter greatly on what he's begun here. And in the next chapter, he's going to narrow the focus of what it means to be spiritual. Not only does a person need to be saved, but there's more to it than that if a person is going to be spiritual from a biblical standpoint. There is this general use of the term spiritual. I'm talking about from a biblical standpoint and a more specific use of the term spiritual from a biblical viewpoint. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Back to my Musée d'Orsay illustration. It could be argued that we're all artists. That could be argued. I've had that argued to me, that we're all artists. In fact, I took an art class in junior high, and I drew some things that I thought were really good at the time. In fact, I took them home, and my parents, because they're loving parents, and they're kind of said, my Bruce, that, you're just a wonderful artist. <laughs> Several years later, I pulled those things out, and I realized I wasn't a very good artist at all. I was an artist, that's true. But there's a difference between being an artist and being a good artist. Just like in my view, there's a difference between something that could be considered art and something that could be considered good art. There are people who consider a crucifix in a jar of urine to be art. I don't consider that to be good art. Because good art will ultimately reflect the glory of God. And those little drawings that I did... Uh, had little re- little resemblance to the glory of God at all. But no one with any sense of sanity would stand in the, the Musée d'Orsay and look at a Monet or a Manet or a Renoir or a Van Gogh or, or go to Amsterdam, the Rijksmuseum, and look at a Rembrandt and argue that they weren't artists. You see, there are artists and then there's artists, people that know what they're doing. So while our little children may produce something that's artistic, there's also the Rembrandts and the Monets out there that are real artists. So that's my point. There are artists and then there are artists. There are people who are spiritual from a biblical sense, and then there are people who are spiritual from a biblical sense, from the chapter 2 sense and then from the chapter Three cents. And I think we'll see that the chapter three cents, when we get there, is a greater spirituality, if I could use that terminology. We don't get more of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit gets more of us in this chapter three type of spirituality. If I could project into chapter three for just a moment, so you might be comfortable with where I'm going with this by the time we get there. Spirituality might be defined this way in the chapter three cents. Remember, in chapter two cents, it's just someone who has the Holy Spirit. Someone who appraises all things. But when we get through chapter 3, we're going to have a deeper understanding of spirituality from a biblical standpoint. It'll go something like like this. Spirituality is a mature and growing relationship to the Holy Spirit. It's acting consistently with the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. Now you can see in chapter 2, it's very limited. Someone who's just a believer and can appraise all things. And we love that. But by the time he gets to the end of chapter 3, he's narrowed it. He's made it much stronger. And it will mean someone who's mature and has a growing relationship with the Holy Spirit and is acting consistently with the Spirit's leading in the life. So by the time we finish chapter 3, we're going to see that there's more to spirituality than just being saved and just being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. 
one of the reasons why I'm, I'm taking the time to do this introduction is because if you read works on spirituality, even by well-known authors that you love and respect, read them carefully. Because sometimes they will focus on a chapter 2 kind of spirituality, and you'll come away with one idea. Other times, though, other authors will focus on a chapter 3 kind of spirituality, and you come across with a way different idea. I don't want to name any names, because the, some of these names I respect very highly. But we need to realize that the argument that began in chapter 2 doesn't end until the end of chapter 3. So we can't just stop at chapter 2 and say, well, I know what there is to know about spirituality. It doesn't work that way. To be spiritual in the chapter 3 sense, one needs not only to be saved, but they need to be growing in grace. If we want to be spiritual, we can't stop at our salvation. There's more to, there's more to the Christian life than just being saved. Just being saved is great, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, anything. But there's more to the Christian life. He leaves us here for a purpose. And it's not just to take up space and to take up oxygen that other people could be breathing or living in. There's more to our lives than that. It's to glorify Him. And if we're really to glorify Him, we've got to be spiritual, not just in the chapter 2 sense, but in the chapter 3 sense as well. We've got to follow the Spirit's leading. We've got to glorify Him with our lives. That's what he's arguing to the Corinthian church, and that's what Paul's arguing to us as well. The distinction, when we come to a more mature understanding is then going to be, not between the spiritual and the natural, but as we proceed, there's going to be another term introduced. You've heard it before. The contrast in the next chapter is going to be between the spiritual and the carnal. But in the next chapter, spiritual and carnal are both believers. So to make sure we're all on the same page, in chapter 2, the contrast is between spiritual and natural. Spiritual is a believer, natural is not. By the time he moves to the next chapter, the contrast is between spiritual and carnal. Spiritual is a believer. Carnal is also a believer. One is walking in fellowship with God, being led by the Holy Spirit, glorifying God with their life. The other one is not. By the time we get to chapter 3, the carnal person is not really making an effort to understand the things of God. They're saved. But if they were standing side by side with an unbeliever, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. That's going to be his point. And really one of the major points of 1 Corinthians is that these people need to have a difference. Not only do they need to make a difference, they need to have a difference. There needs to be a difference between the Corinthian culture, the unsaved Corinthian culture, and what's going on inside the Corinthian church. That's why he's walking them through this argument. First part, yes, you're saved. There is a distinction between you and the Corinthian culture positionally. In the next chapter, yes, you're saved, but there needs to be even a greater distinction. You need to act like it. That's going to be the distinction between spiritual and carnal. Paul will introduce in the next chapter that those who are spiritual positionally may not always be spiritual experientially. In both Ephesians and Galatians, Paul expands even more, relating that at any one moment in our lives, we may be submitting ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit's ministry, or we may not. We may be walking, according to the terminology he uses in Galatians, we may be walking by means of the Holy Spirit, or we'll be walking by means of the flesh. One who is walking by means of the Holy Spirit is spiritual in Galatians. One who is walking by means of the flesh is carnal, as Paul uses the term here. He also introduces the idea of being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians, in his letter to the Ephesians. 
when we put it all together, we could say that genuine biblical spirituality involves three factors. This is the way I want to wrap this up. It involves three factors. First, regeneration. We have to be saved. Before we can be spiritual, in the biblical sense, we have to be saved. Not in the contemporary sense, not in the contemporary culture. You can be spiritual and worship a tree. Literally. I'm not joking about that. Literally. But in the biblical sense, in order to be spiritual, the first step is you've got to be saved. When we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. Then we have the potential to understand God's wisdom, the things of the Spirit, and the thoughts of God. The second thing, we need to take advantage of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which include teaching, guiding, assuring, praying. You know that the Holy Spirit prays for us, and He helps us to pray for things that will be valid. The exercise of spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit helps us in the war that we have against the flesh. We also need to take advantage of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, to be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. And the final factor is growth. The final factor in biblical spirituality, the highest form of spirituality, is growth. You can be spiritual temporarily as an immature Christian. But I've got to tell you, that type of spirituality would be equated to my drawings in the junior high versus Monet's in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. There is a spirituality that is more mature, and that takes growth. Whether it's human maturity or spiritual maturity, it takes time. There's a time factor, and it takes growth. It involves learning the Word and then acting on what has been learned. Some might use the word maturity as a synonym for this form of spirituality. My point is that the Bible uses these terms in many different ways. You can be spiritual as a brand new believer. Not this summer, but last summer, my son David was a counselor at Camp Pinal. Had an opportunity to talk to many people about Jesus Christ. One was a 16-year-old young man who was a hardened atheist. Very intelligent young man. One of these... Super intelligent kids that goes to college when they're 16, that kind of kid. Super intelligent kid, but a hardened atheist. David used some of the things that he was taught right here in the foundations class, up at Dan's class, and talked to this fellow. The Holy Spirit was involved, and not at the camp, but several months later, the young man came to Christ. Lives over in England now, is attending a prep school over there. Brilliant kid. One of these kids who once he latched onto something, did it just like C.S. Lewis did back in the 30s. I mean, he latched on. And this week, my son David sent me a letter that this young man had sent to him describing his Christian experience and the things that he had discovered with enthusiasm over the last several months. And it's amazing. You would have thought Lewis might have written some of that. He is more well-read, this 16-year-old kid, he is more well-read in the last few months than a lot of us are over the last few years. It's embarrassing. But he's enthusiastic. He's ready to go. So there are people who can be believers for a short period of time, and they could catch fire. In fact, if we look at Paul's letters to the Corinthians, some of the growth that he feels like should have taken place in them, he is allowing four to five years for he expects the Corinthians to have matured in their faith in four to five years. Sometimes we wonder, how long does it take to become a mature believer in Jesus Christ? Well, I don't know. I think it's an individual thing for all of us. But Paul expected 
the Corinthians to become spiritually mature in the chapter 3 sense, not in the chapter 1 sense. In the chapter 3 sense, in 4 to 5 years. That's a little intimidating for the rest of us, too. But whether it takes 4 to 5 years, or 10 to 20 years, or 20 to 25 years, or the rest of our lives, the goal is to get there. And to be spiritual in the fullest sense. In the sense that we have a mature and growing relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we follow His leading in our lives. So this morning we've had a bird's eye view of spirituality. In our next lesson we're going to get into more of the specifics of chapter 2's exposition on the subject of spirituality. We're going to unpack in a very careful way. How Paul is using not just the term spirituality, but we're going to go back to that term mature and see how he's using that in chapter 2. And also the term natural and see why he picks that term. Of all the terms he could pick to describe the unbeliever, why pick natural? Today if something's a natural product, it's something good. But the term that he picks is not necessarily the same kind of idea. As we unpack it, I don't want us to lose sight of the primary thrust of this chapter. Paul is continuing his argument about the power of the message of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, in this paragraph, chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, which we'll continue next time, he is stressing that God's divine self-disclosure, here called, in this paragraph, called God's wisdom, the things of the Spirit, and the thoughts of God, are only rightly understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to fully appreciate and understand and apply God's self-disclosure to mankind.